Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Athletics Life Stories with your host, Chris Broadbent. Can't do that in a final of an Olympic Games and I kick myself every time I watch it. And and just be able to say goodbye on my terms was just just a nice closing to that chapter. Every Christmas we'd do a hill session, but we'd be in fancy dress. Welcome to Athletics Life Stories with myself, Chris Broadbent. Today I'm joined by Donna Fraser, OBE. She represented Team GB four times at the Olympic Games and has won World, European and Commonwealth medals. She played a central role in one of the most iconic races in Olympic athletics history. Uh, she was a mainstay of the GB's 400 metre relay team for many years and was always an effervescent and popular member of the team. Uh, off the track, she's had to deal with some traumatic issues, uh, but has come through and emerged as a nationally highly respected figure, as a champion for diversity and inclusion. Donna, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. It's nice to, to be on your show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, let's go right back to start then. So so how did you tell me about your uh, running talent and how you first realised you could you could run a bit. Were you the fastest kid at school? Um, I was and I probably got practice from running away from mum uh, from being a bit mischievous. So I, I was quite a, a little, well, not so much a terror. I say terror. It, it was it was fun mischievousness, not not really bad stuff. Um, yeah, I, I my primary school was an all girls primary school and my sisters had gone there before me. And so the teachers bizarrely knew who I was growing up. I didn't know this, um, but apparently my sister had taken me in parents evening when I was a baby in my pram and that same teacher ended up teaching me uh, and she picked up on my talent Miss Hughes I'm an amazing teacher um, both you know academically and for sports she loved her sports uh, and I'll always remember her saying to, to the girls her girls as, mm-hmm. as the teachers would say because they were all girls women teachers female teachers as well as she'd always say to me, you know, Donna, just look straight ahead. Do not look left or right and be determined. And that's what she'd always say to us when we 
we were ready to compete. And when I say compete, I was only running 55 metres at that age, that very young age for, for the school. And, and I just loved it. I loved running. I loved sports. I loved that teamwork. And yeah, it, it, it just gave me that spark. And you know, when you you have that and then you go back into the classroom, you're just so excited and can focus on your work. And I loved I loved school. So many people don't have good memories of school, but I loved school. Good, good, good. And were, were your family sporting as well? Were you did you have some athletic DNA to, to look back to to tap into? Well, apparently my dad says, yes, he, he I get get it from him. Um, he loved cross country cricket. That was the thing coming from the West Indies. Cricket was was the sport, and we watched that on TV. Even growing up, watching cricket on TV, horse racing. My mum loved. My mum loved that uh, wrestling, which I obviously didn't get into. You know, Big Daddy, the days of those. So sport was part of my DNA, definitely. Both watching it on TV and, and um, my genes. But my sister was the one. There's a ten year age gap between myself. Uh, and the sister before myself and she loved athletics so it was always on tv 84 was a big memory for me watching the olympics on tv and thinking oh look at all of that much so much fun and color and the parade and i was like i want some of that and and that's what i aspired to was watching la on, on the olympics on tv and what what do you particularly as much the first Olympics I remember as well? Um, what 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 moment stuck out to you? Was it Tessa Sanderson? Was it David Thompson? Sebko? All of them? Was it? Was oh, it? And you know what is so? This is going to sound really bad. It wasn't even the performances. It was the closing ceremony because it just looked like fun. And that's yeah. the kind of person I was. I just loved fun and colour and vibrancy and. I was like, that looks just fantastic. And and of course, yes, yeah, I've, I've got older. I know the performances were iconic, you know, that they're, they're the, the ones who paved the way for a lot of us British athletes. So, you know, I don't discount that by no means. It, it, but for me at that age, it wasn't about the performance or the winning. It was just that coming together. And, and that's probably why I ended up in d and <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, OK. <laughs> um, and did you go to Croydon Harriers soon after that? Was that your first club? Yes, and still yeah. is my my club. Um, yes, yeah. I, I've stayed, uh, you know, true to them. That they absolutely opened so many doors for me. Without them, I wouldn't have become the athlete that that I did become. And yeah, I, I do have a lot of memories going down my first cold evening to. You know, after very a lot of convincing my parents to let me go, uh, I didn't do much of that. That was more my sister was my voice at that time. As I said, with a 10 year age gap, it was if mum and dad said no, then I'd just take it. But my sister could see that I had a talent, but also I was very shy. Um, but when I was doing sport, that shyness just disappeared and I was in my element. So when I turned up at Croydon, Harriers and just seeing everyone doing everything I wanted to do I, I just beamed uh, and I, I guess my, my dad saw that uh, and allowed me to, mm. to go down so yeah Croydon Harriers definitely set the scene for me of what that that teamwork ethic was and that transition from primary school through to that club environment it, it was just it was just the norm for me. And who else was around at the time who else was involved with Croydon Harriers at uh, the stage with you? 
Yeah, so Mike Fleet, he's still there, um, a, a stalwart of Croydon Harriers. I didn't, I wasn't in his group. Sheila Glover was my first uh, coach and she had all females in it again. It was just the norm for me, all females she coached. And Annabelle Soper, who was also very quick at that, that young age when we were both held the record actually for 90 metres at the Croydon School. So two rivals from different schools coming together to train together. It, it was an interesting rivalry. OK, OK. And you quickly made progress because you were, you were a successful junior, weren't you? Went, went to the European Juniors and uh, you won gold. He won gold, Donna. Not bad, uh, eh? Not bad. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people didn't think I'd even get through the heats. It's interesting how how things pan out. You know, I started off as a 100 metre, 200 metres, and then quickly transitioned into the 400, which I, I must say I, I wasn't overly excited about. Um, but it, it, with the long legs and I grew and it just seemed right. It was the right fit for me. Um, and yeah, of course, I went to the European Juniors uh, for that event, the 400 metres. And, you know, going into those championships, not ranked highly at all. Um, and this is why I always say it's what happens on the day. You could be the quickest in the world, Europe, nation, but it's what happens on the day. You've got to raise your game. And I was able to do that. And you know, kept all those critics quiet for a little bit. Yeah, I was in Greece in 1991. What were your memories of that? Who else was in the team and what were your other memories around that event? Oh, the huge, well, it's so interesting. My years as a junior at an international meets were, it, it was just brilliant. Again, you know, you had your fun, but when you stepped foot on that track, it, you meant business because you had the GB vest on. Uh, and that just was it wasn't about prize money. And I know a lot of it is around this sport now. It wasn't about that. It was just coming together. And a lot of us had come through the ranks uh, together. You know, Darren, Darren Campbell, Catherine Mary, Marcy Richardson, you know, and a lot of them are still in the sport now. So seeing them, we've, we've just grown together, which is really nice to see. Uh, and I, I just wouldn't change it for the world. You know, sometimes I think, oh, well, if I'd really seen it as a career rather than just a hobby, as it were, you know, what what would my mindset have been? But I wouldn't have changed it. I wouldn't change it because I, I loved it. I really enjoyed every minute. Mm, great stuff. Great stuff. Uh, so you, you obviously established yourself for winning gold then. Uh, but it was a few years until you what happened between 91 and 96? I was looking at uh, some of the. Your records and I just could I could hardly find you between 91 and their first Olympics what what, what happened in those years yeah I, I unfortunately the following year I was struck with glandular fever um I didn't know that I had glandular fever so I continued to train really hard but couldn't quite understand why and it wasn't until I I had that diagnosis went to Norfolk Park um, and I was diagnosed with with uh, glandular fever and it because it, it had gone so far I didn't really address it early I it just wiped me out completely um, but in turn it, it really kicked into my mindset I, I was afraid of doing the 400 meters I thought it was the 400 meters that made me ill uh, it, it was just a bizarre feeling and I just had that mental block of not wanting to train too hard, just doing enough or not even contemplating running 400. So it took a while for me and my coach to just get back 
and just put that behind us. And then it wasn't until 94 that I went to my first Commonwealth Games uh, just for for the relay, not for the individual, but didn't get a run. So that was devastating in itself. Mm, OK, OK. But you've, you've got yourself back into the international scene and got that your Olympic vest as well at uh, Atlanta. Yeah. Um, how special was it to get that, that to, to, to become an Olympian? Oh, wow. Um, it, it's almost like it was yesterday. I remember getting the letter uh, and because of what happened in 94, not being selected for the individual and, and then just being going for the relay and not running and to receive that letter that said I was going for the individual and the relay was just mm. like, oh, a burden had just come off of my shoulders and I'm like right this is it Donna and obviously my parents were over the moon and even though years before when they were like no athletics is not going to pay the bills they were they were they were definitely over the moon as well and I, I just felt that sense of pride not just where you know my first GB vest my first Olympics but also looking back to the the 84 watching it on TV and thinking this is my opportunity to go and really experience it for myself and then that pride for everyone who supported me Miss Hughes from primary school my sister you know the woman at Tesco checkout who probably read me in the Croydon advertiser who was always everyone on my road just it just made me feel like I've got something to, to prove to them that I can't let them down. Okay and you, you all you did quite well you almost got to semi-finals didn't you? Yeah. Bad. Yeah. No, I, I can't complain. Again, it was a stepping stone. I did come away with a personal best. And as you know, Chris, those days, it was four rounds. Uh, you had first, second round, semi-final and the final, not just three rounds. So in a way, it was tougher um, because you just had to raise your game every single time. But yeah, I came away with a personal best. But the experience in itself was yeah, I, I couldn't put a price on that. Obviously, it's a funny game, really, in many ways. For the, the, the British team, I mean, there's some giant names in there, you know, some all-timers like, you know, Jonathan Edwards, Colin Jackson, Linford Christie, Steve Backley, Liz McColgan. You know, it's, it's a real who's who of British athletics. And yet it wasn't a successful game, was it, in no. terms of the British medals? So it was, it was, um, what, was the, what was what was the atmosphere like? I mean, were you conscious that it's not going too well, this? No, I wasn't. <laughs> I absolutely wasn't. I was just in awe of being on the team with all those that I'd seen on TV and been shouting for, for all those years. And it, it was a learning curve for me. And I used that as an opportunity to watch and learn and how they were as individuals at, at the top of their game. So I was oblivious as to where we were and medals and all of that. That just did not. I was just it absorbed. I was like a sponge just absorbing what was going on around me, just taking it all in and just enjoying the experience. Because it, although you think, OK, the next game's in four years, you never know. It's such a fine mm. line. I, I might not be around in another four years. So I just took it all on board and just enjoyed the experience to the to the max. And the girls that I shared with, there was eight of us in an apartment and we call us ourselves the class of 96. And uh, we're still friends uh, and we had an anniversary the, the 20 years later and it, it's just such a sisterhood that that experience I had in 96 I, I could never change I could never match it with all the following games that I went to but that friendship of the eight girls inseparable it's just amazing and who's who are those eight girls then 
So G Geraldine McLeod, I shared with uh, Marcy Richardson. Uh, there was Denise Lewis, Jackie Ajapong, uh, Michelle uh, now uh, Michelle Robinson, who was then Griffith, uh, Simone Jacobs, and Stephanie Douglas. Okay, you'll still get together and what and just yeah have a night out together, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> do. We 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 really do because it's not often that those kinds of friendships last you know we've all got our own characters we've all done different in gone different ways after retirement but when we come together we have such a ball like we were in 96. Okay okay great so you've got a bit of momentum back in your career then haven't you and then you went to world champs the next year also you run a PB you got 50 87 in Bislett so you're starting to you're starting to motor on now yeah Oh wow! See, see, you're you're, you're telling me all the stuff I've forgotten. <laughs> uh, well, running, I mean, running in places like Bislett and finishing second oh, yeah. is like you know, it's, it's big, isn't it? It's big. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that race because um, that that was when the track, the the crowd were very close to the outside lane, and I was on the outside lane. Surprise, surprise, because I'd always get thrown in lane eight, seven, and eight. It was bizarre. I was convinced that. Um, it, there's no way that it was it was like okay Donna can go in lane eight um, so yeah I do remember that race and I remember Tony Jarrett because it was very relaxed we warmed up on the infield which was even more bizarre because there's not much warm-up space uh, at the old when it was when I was there and uh, I remember us talking about I always had wine gums in my bag before I raced and handing out the wine gums and, and we it was I was so relaxed which made me also realize this is how when I perform at my best is when I'm the most relaxed and not tense and thinking this is what I need to do um, so again that was a there was always a learning uh, point in every race that I would take away and write down in my diary. But basically, I mean, running at the outside lane, you could high, almost high five the crowd, couldn't you, on the way yeah, around? Yeah, yeah, it felt like they yeah. could literally touch me on the shoulder. It was bizarre, <laughs> but maybe that's what took my mind off of it. <laughs> good, good stuff. And then the next year was a good year. You won a, a bronze in the Commonwealth Games. You uh, got to the final of the Europeans. So, what did that feel like getting your first, well, your first medal, really, first major medal? Yeah, 98 was an interesting one. Kuala Lumpur um, with hardly anyone in the stadium. It just felt like a training session. Um, I, I really was quite disappointed with coming third because I didn't run um, how I how I felt I should have run. Um, but I had a great opportunity to put things kind of right in the in both relays. I was drafted into the four by one, which was like, are you serious? Um, mm. And we got a medal in that and then literally legged it off the rostrum for the 400 to, to do the uh, the four by four. But yeah, it was uh, it, it was a bittersweet coming away with three medals. Great. Fantastic. But I just knew I had more in the tank. And and then we had the Europeans as well. And I, again, didn't run as well as I could have. And it's always easy to say I could have done better, but I just couldn't quite nail my my pacing for the 400 and it just wasn't it just wasn't happening and it wasn't through lack of fitness it, it there was something not gelling right for me in the 400 so so the years that followed definitely was something that my coach and I really started to knuckle down on hmm. okay okay and the big the big one is is the 2000 Olympics obviously the next Olympics was was the big one you were can you tell us about your training arrangements because obviously it's one of the most iconic um you know, athletics races in history with Cathy Freeman winning the gold in, in front of the 
raucous Sydney crowd and the pressure leading up to that to, to that as well. What, what were your arrangements though? You were training with Cathy at the time in the UK, weren't you? Yeah, it's it's so funny because uh, in ninety nine, in late ninety eight, after the Commonwealth Games and Europeans, I broke my ankle. So going into the ninety nine season, which is probably where you'll see a little bit of a blip. I, I my my physios and AO worked so hard and I did as well just trying to get back because I knew the following year was an important year so it didn't matter what times I was running it was just the case of getting relatively fit so I wasn't starting from scratch in 2000 but in 2000 things were going okay um and then AO who's the most he was the most eccentric coach that I knew mm. um he, he somehow and I don't know how to this very day managed to arrange for me to train with Kathy Freeman that summer leading into Sydney and I'd known Catherine before through competitions and seeing her but on this level to be training with her which is world class was just like are you serious um, but we just had an amazing summer um, I myself didn't even realise how fit I was getting. I was just trying to get through every training session the best that I could and not A, embarrass myself and B, put her out and her team. So it wasn't just rocking up and training. There was just so much expectations that I put on myself. No one else did. I, I put it on myself that, you know, I can't just take the mic. Not that I ever did, but I just can't just get through sessions. It, it had to be given 110% and more every single time we train together. Can you give us a, an idea? It's, it's what doesn't really get seen in terms of an athlete's life, but the bulk of your life is is hard training, isn't it? Can you? And when you're training with somebody like Cathy Freeman, who's you know top of a game, you know she has to be absolutely a one when it comes to the Olympics, and you're her, you're, you're training with her. Just can you try and just encapsulate how what what's the how hard is the training? What's what's what do you put yourself through on a sustained basis? I think there's only one word I can explain. Um, pain. It's just pain every single day. Um, I I do remember my very first gym with her, um, and we were doing two hundreds, and the the just thinking, okay, fine, we've got a certain amount of two hundreds to do in a certain time. All I kept thinking was just try and stick with her through every repetition, every repetition. She was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I was just <laughs> going backwards every single rep and it was just painful. I can feel it now, just the thought thinking, oh, this is just the worst. This, this is just terrible. But it actually was a light bulb moment for me because I thought I've got a lot of work to do and... I've just got to really scrape the barrel every single session now. It's not the case of just getting through the session. I've got to really push those boundaries every single time and, and just try and get that gap closed um, and not her just being a dot in the distance. And that started to happen um, without even realising it. It was literally went from her in the dot for me to being on her shoulder. Um, and then we were very much in tune with our training and there were sometimes I was ahead of her and and we really did complement each other and again our focus was Sydney it wasn't just about the session it was beyond beyond the training sessions as well and then of course along the way we built up a really good relationship as well. Okay okay so so I guess fast forwarding to Sydney itself and that you, you get to the Olympics there and um, 
from the outside, you're not really expected to to get to the final, I would say. Most pundits would say that. But and um, you must have known yourself you were in good nick if you were keeping up with Cathy in training. You must have thought, you must have felt slightly confident going to go into the games. Yeah, I, I was confident in my ability. Um, but of course, leading into the at Sydney, a lot of girls had run broken 50 at that point. Uh, there were some of the Russian athletes, there were a few Americans. Uh, you know, it wasn't going to be easy. Everyone was going to be in Sydney. So I, I did not rest on my laurels that I knew I was in good shape. I, I, what was the turning point was prior to going to Sydney, I ran a 300 in Gateshead. And that was the moment when I thought, I feel good. Um, I feel in my element this just feels right something that I've been looking for for many years and I always said I can now after Sydney I could judge how well I feel or how good I feel where where I feel like I'm just floating I'm just literally gliding along the track and and that's what I was able to to benchmark myself against moving forward but yes that Gateshead race was just like oh I just I just blew everyone away without even with effort, mm. with no effort. It just didn't feel like it was a struggle. I was fighting mentally because I was always quite a relaxed runner but inside, you know, the, the mental state and how, what you're thinking. But it, everything just flowed. So going into Sydney, absolutely. Yes, I was confident in my own ability. But you never know what can happen on the day, you know, and you could have a headwind, you know, things I could be thrown out in lane eight. <laughs> you know, all those things can come into play, which I was thrown in in lane seven and eight, apart from the final. But, yeah, I was confident in my own ability. I wasn't thinking so far ahead about a medal. And that may have well been my downfall in a way. Mm. And I always say that, you know, I, I didn't paint the full picture my picture was just get through every round, get through every round. But then what did that end result look like? I, I never painted that picture. So you obviously got to the final. Did we, When you got on the start line there and the lead up to it, it was, um, you know, it was, were you conscious of the, of the world watching, of the, of, the, of the occasion you were in? Or are you in a bubble at that stage? How does it work? I, w- I was I was absolutely in a bubble, um, as I said, you know, through the rounds, lane seven and eight, and then in the final thrown in lane two, and I was like, oh, this is just crazy. Um, but I knew the pressure that Catherine was under um, through the rounds. We, I, I think I was actually in one of her, uh, one of the rounds, and then the come the final, obviously, we were together, but we weren't together in the warm-up area, and I think that is definitely something that I missed because a lot of self-doubt kicked in leading into the, the final, and AO didn't have accreditation into the warm-up area, so I was heavily reliant on on Fort, who was Kathy Freeman's coach, because that's who I was with through the summer, but of course his his loyalty lays with Kathy with Freeman. So I, I respected that. So I did feel, you know, those gremlins that can get into your head. And as I said, we didn't paint that full picture, you know, the what if I get to the final, how will I deal with it? What? And we didn't go through that bit. And I, I, I was, I just went into the race thinking, I am not going, going to follow Kathy Freeman, stupid me, uh, because I knew how she ran. I knew how... I was used to running with her throughout the summer and you know hindsight is a is a funny thing and I just wish I had 
followed her but I was adamant I wouldn't I would run my own race I went to the other extreme so much so that I wasn't focused on what was going on around me and it wasn't till 150 to go I was realized I was last <laughs> by looking up at the screens and thinking oh my gosh what is and I still had loads of running left in me I wasn't tired or anything so that's that last 150 was was my Olympic final yeah, because it's, it's your PB, isn't it? It's your, it's your, you get under 50 seconds. It's a, it's a very good time. But when you do, I assume you've watched the race many times since then. I watched it myself the other night, and you do, you can't help but think, what's Donna doing in the first 200 meters? You yeah. were just, you were just jogging. Well, oh, no, you weren't jogging, of course, oh, you weren't jogging. But, but you were, you were, you were, you were way out of contention. You're just, oh, uh, you were, you were, so way, way off is an understatement. You know, like going through in 24-6. You can't do that in a final of an Olympic Games and I kick myself every time I watch it because I could have run 24 and a half backwards uh, and having so much running in my legs that last bit was just it's like if only you know, I was in contention it would have been an interesting race but um you know that's it I can't you could always second guess what could have happened shoulda coulda woulda there's no point in dwelling too much I was devastated don't I won't lie to you Chris but at the same time I was really over the moon for, for my training partner Catherine mm, okay okay great great so that's that was Sydney uh what was the what was the general reaction to when he when he got back were you did you was it people did it did it soften the blow a little bit were people thrilled to see as part of that and finishing oh so yeah, 100%. Yeah. You know, being in Australia, so isolated as it is, and those are the, gone are the days of mobile phones and social media, you know, they, they weren't really there. Um, so it wasn't until I got home, the positive impact that I had had on, on my neighbours, my friends, my family. And, and yes, it, it did kind of soften the blow, but at the same time, I was still gutted. Um, I knew I I could have run that race so much better and I did feel like I'd let AO down I, I felt I let myself down uh, you know of course Catherine, Catherine, Catherine Mary got the bronze and she's my teammate but I still was just so gutted it, it, it still it still is in there it won't I don't think that will ever go um, I just didn't trust in myself enough but yeah coming back to a street party and the family <laughs> just going crazy and over the moon and I'm like ah, you know but so it, it was nice to come back to that but at the same time you know that little niggling thing in the back <laughs> <laughs> okay okay good so so you've come back you're you're uh and then you had a bit of a gap and you went you had did you have some injury problems after that in the, in the following year or two yeah I, you did get you did get to Athens didn't you but you had a few bumps in the road there yeah yeah the the next four years in fact um I had Achilles problems as far back as 96 um but I was always able to maintain and keep it at bay and still be able to compete uh, and manage it but you know I was at, I was at my peak really in mm. Sydney I'd I'd done everything possible to get to that point and my body was the Achilles was like Mm -mm, Donna enough's enough you can't keep pushing me like this um, and I always say the Achilles have got a mind of its own one day it'll be fine the next day you can just about get out of bed so um, that really 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 set me back um, the ne next few years operations and trying everything 
possible just to to get back running and and you know what it's like in a 400 you can't miss any one part of training you need your speed you need your you need your weight training and just doing upper body isn't going to cut it. It, it running in the pool isn't going to cut it so it took a long while to get back and um, Athens was a different I had a different mindset going into Athens it was more I've got something to prove to myself and got something to prove to others that I've not finished yet so getting that vest was like yes I've made it although I knew I would not be able to I wasn't in the shape I was as I was for Sydney I knew I wasn't um so it it, it was a different uh, um focus for Athens completely different focus mm-hmm. did, did you ever get that that to that peak fitness again or was that uh or as close to it yeah to the following year 2005 I, I got close to it things were, were going pretty well in 2005 actually um but then of course you get older and the Achilles is still there just trying mm. to keep that at bay um you know it, it things were just not clicking again it, it it got tougher and tougher to be honest which is is why I decided to kind of try something different indoors the the, the following years mm. yeah I'll, I'll get to the indoors yeah because you, you I wouldn't say physiologically you've been obvious candidates around the indoors yeah, but, no. but you, you're pretty good weren't you you're actually pretty good um yeah but you did get you did go you were part of the relay team at the 2007 Worlds when you got you got a medal there that was a, a nice moment yes it was um again I think they always say history repeats itself when you've broken 50 seconds and and you know what that feels like any other race if it's not matching that something's not right and mm. and that's how I felt in 2007 in the individual I had it in me but it just wasn't coming out and things it was almost just the same as I said history just repeating itself and I just needed probably another few years just for it to click again and or maybe I just needed Catherine Foom in the back um but one of the two um but yeah it it just wasn't clicking so again I came away yes with a medal yes I was over the moon because me and the other girls you know we came together and, and we did really well but I, I was still yearning for that individual medal and what was the relationship like with the other girls in the team then you was, was it was Christine was in the team, I guess. Nicola Sanders, Marilyn Okoro. Yeah. It was, you know, so uh, you'd have a good spirit amongst yourselves. Do you have? Oh Because you, yeah. you are you are rivals as well, aren't you? You are rivals, but also, yeah. How'd yeah. You, I always say, I always say this: the four by four girls are uh, like a, they are like a sisterhood. You know, we could be up against each other days before, but when it comes to the relay, we know what our role is, and without us playing at our roles out then we'll let the entire team down so you park the individual you put that to one side and just focus on the individual and who's going to be best on what leg and and I loved it because you know obviously being the oldest in in the team and the most experienced I did feel like they were my little sisters um many a time I'd be you know keeping them calm and offering out the wine gums and and Mm -hmm. many a times though they always laughed on you know you're in charge of the wine gums and and that's no problem but it when we you know in the call room was just the moment where I always felt that I needed to step up and keep them calm and just give them that confidence and that helped me um stay calm as well helping them stay calm which is really bizarre but you know getting getting that getting that collective 
thought process together that we're here as one there's no just one person's relay we're all together it was just quite self self um satisfactory for me and what was your relationship like with some of the some of your rivals at the time so around that i mean actually it's quite a broad era isn't it but you are going from like you know kathy freeman to uh you know, through to Sanya Richards Ross, and did you ever race against Felix and the, these these type of athletes? No, yeah. I didn't race Alison. I, I raced definitely Sanya, um, and and this is it. You know, most of the time you either see the athletes, you know, in the hotel. It might just be an acknowledgement more than anything else. Um, and then you get onto the warm up area and, and there's no acknowledgement because everyone's heads down. Mm-hmm. And then you get into the call room and there's definitely no acknowledgement. It's heads down and just focus. So it's a very short window of where you actually get to either converse. There's not many 400 meter runners that I, I would say that I'm like best of buddies. Catherine, Kathy Freeman was probably the closest because I spent the most time with her. Mm. Um, there are very few that I would sit down and sit down and have a little, oh, how's things going and so forth. But not many, not many. It was more, I was actually close to the ones in the British team. Mm. Okay, okay, okay. Are, are you still in touch with Kathy Freeman? Do you still... Uh, yeah on and off on Facebook yeah Yeah. she's a very private person she Mm. always has been um so again you know I respect that and and now and again we'll message each other say hi or if it's an anniversary of Sydney you know it's it's just very far and few between but after Sydney I did go back to train with her for a bit in 2006 and 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 that again it was just a nice she invited me to her home her family are amazing um so yeah it, it's just very it's intermittent okay okay nice nice so you did get to Beijing didn't you but you were uh, you're in the as part of the relay team but you didn't get to run there did you what no, um, so so, no. so how is that I mean is it it's obviously bittersweet we've used that word already but um it's nice to get the Olympic vest but how does it feel when you don't actually get to run Oh, devastating. No, no athlete wants to go, you know, be selected and not get a run. I, I was I was disappointed hugely. But again, history repeats itself. Um, and it was a bit of an eye opener for me to think, mm, you know, Donna, what's going on here? Is, is this right for you? Are you at the end of your game? But deep down, I knew I wasn't. I absolutely wasn't. I just would have liked to have had the opportunity to at least run in the heats in Beijing because I think we were easily going to qualify um so I was disappointed with the selection process of that um but yeah I I went there but I did my job to be the experienced of of the team and, and give the advice and support and be part of the squad in Beijing I did my job as that leader as it were so um yeah I was happy to be there but it still wasn't enough for me it must be tempting just to mope around a bit, but I mean, it's not in your nature, that is it? No, no, definitely not. No. Absolutely not in my nature. It's split second, I'll be disappointed and gutted, and then I pick myself up. Let's yeah. go again. What's the next thing? <laughs> so next, the next year was it was a well, a significant one actually. But um, you you had a really good indoor season, didn't you? you went to the 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 indoors, the uh, the trials, and you won the two hundred meters, the four hundred meters. And you, you were going well, weren't you, in the indoors? And you, got, you really were. You, got, you really were. You got to the uh, European indoors as well and got to the final there. 
Yeah, that that was that was the turning point. I I needed something different to focus on, and I thought, what better than to do indoors with my long legs? That's just going to be interesting. <laughs> but I love the two hundred indoors. I I wish that was an event. It was, of course, being in lane one would be a lot harder, but I loved it. I just loved that feeling, and, and it just felt so good. And and then to go to Europeans and come away with a medal for the relay, 400 was tough indoors. 400 doing 400 indoors is tough. It's tough for me with my legs, and also it's more tactical than than outdoors. You have to be in front from the bell, and so you can dictate the race. So there's a lot. Of, but I needed that. I needed a fresh outlook on, on the sport, and, and it was great. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, I was really excited for the outdoors after that indoor season I thought right this is exactly what I need um I'm looking forward to the outdoors but yeah a lot of things just a lot of curveballs got thrown my way that year yeah well that, that that's right yeah I mean it was it was that was the year you were diagnosed wasn't it with breast cancer yeah it was yeah the May of, of 2009 uh getting that diagnosis completely blew me away i just couldn't understand how why what does this mean because you know anyone that hears the word cancer you automatically think of you're gonna die that's it um so it was it was definitely a traumatic time but I will always say if I hadn't done athletics and had that athlete mindset I would have not got through that period um you know you get given the news and you can't change that. You can only do move forward and look forward and what you need to do, put things in place and, and just live each day the best you can. And it, it was it was hard. It was definitely hard because I didn't want to be. And as you said earlier, I don't I'm not the kind of person to dwell too much on disappointment and pick myself up a, and move forward. But this one was particularly hard because I not only needed to be strong for me but I needed to be strong for my family because I know if I had broken down they'd be devastated and I I did not want to be wrapped in cotton wool I was like no 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 none of this come on treat me treat me like you would normally if you didn't hear this news so I had to uphold uh, a sense of um that I guess what's the word just not bravery because I don't like it's not about being brave it's courage to come on let's just do this together and we can get through it so yeah it was definitely a testing time without a doubt and so did you I do remember that season it was it was it was billed as a uh, like a farewell race at Crystal Palace wasn't it and it was billed as that and I remember I think I was at Crystal Palace at the time I remember you doing a lap of honour and the rest and um but it must have been a different you knew differently to what the crowd knew. It must have been a very strange um, emotional experience for you. Oh, it was. It was. It was hard to keep things quiet. I, I told obviously my coach, I told my training partners, uh, obviously my family as well. But I, I just wanted to continue. But at the same time, I knew I needed to look after me. Hence why it was the decision to just retire quietly. Well, I say quietly because it was like, why, why are you retiring? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, of course, I, I knew still deep down I wasn't done. I, I wanted to retire on my own terms. So, you know, going through that whole 2009 of 
of making decisions that I needed to make about my health and, and then at the same time thinking I'm saying goodbye to my sport that I love that I've only ever known was just a really tough tough decision to make but I had to because I just need to get myself well I couldn't do the two it just would have been it would have been hard for me to do both even though I do think sometimes I'm superwoman but I think this is something that would have been a, a really hard task so yeah mentally as well as physically I just needed just to focus on on getting well and doing what I needed to do listen to the doctors and go through that process um so yeah so that that farewell was just as you say there was so much other stuff going on yeah. in my head as okay. to why I was ending my career and what was the process then you, you had a mastectomy did you that year as well yeah and, I did yeah, yeah I opted for, I opted for that it wasn't it wasn't that I had to I didn't have to um I chose to uh because I I just didn't I didn't want to live year after year thinking it's going to come back let me just get rid of the the bad stuff that's the way mm. I can see it get rid of the bad stuff because I'm still mm. me um, so yeah, December that same year, I, I had I had the operation, and and again, it, it was just almost like another chapter in my life that finally, okay, my athletics was over, but this was a another part of me that I needed to rebuild myself, mm. um, and that whole it's bizarre, you know, the confidence I lost a lot of confidence. It, it was just really strange, literally overnight. And I spent a lot of time trying to rebuild that. And that's why I decided to get involved with the charity and and give back where I could. And I just know my worth more than anything else, because without athletics, well, what was my purpose? It was like, what do I do now? Mm. Mm. Um, So, yeah, getting involved with what was then Breakthrough Breast Cancer Now, it's Breast Cancer Now, was just almost another lease of life for me. Okay, okay. And did, was, was it that year or the year after you became involved with uh, with that charity? The 2010 during recovery, yeah, that was when I had yeah. um, I had a good chat with myself and thought I need to do something. So I got involved with them then. Um, and then, of course, two years later, I thought, right, okay, well, I'm okay. Let me get hmm. dust off my spikes and make a comeback and and end on my own terms uh, and that's what I decided to do and it was just bizarre the reception I got from why are you why are you coming out of retirement what what's wrong with you who wants to come back to 400 meters I'm like well you don't know the reasons I know the reasons why mm, um, mm. and it, it was just really nice to be back and being in the training group again and having fun it was almost like I was reliving being eight years old again um, at primary yeah. school just enjoying it again yeah so like you say you had, you had a crack at London 2012 didn't you just uh, for I mean was it real was it ever realistic you think you might make no. it or was it no okay it, 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 it wasn't it but anything is possible as Ayo was always would always tell me but I knew deep down that was a big ask I was I was much older I've missed a huge chunk of training um but it was more for me to say goodbye properly and it was just crazy the the um gosh I'm getting emotional now the reception I got that day I couldn't have asked for anything better what was this? Yeah, it's your comeback race, or or do you mean in your yeah? 
Yeah, the um, the trials. It was the trials for 2012, mm. and and that morning the story came out um, about the breast cancer and all of that. So everyone who knew me knew why I was there, and to get a standing ovation was like, mm. this is. I just I, it blew me away. I thought, how the hell am I going to get around this 400 <laughs> in one piece? It was. I, it was just nice. It was just nice to get recognised that all those years that I'd given to the sport. Oh God, I didn't even think I'd be like this. <laughs> um, yeah, and and just be able to say goodbye on my terms was just just a nice closing to that chapter. Mm, more appropriate for you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, you're you're hugely admired for it as well. God, I can't believe I'm crying. <laughs> but it's just remembering standing on that line, thinking, "Oh mm. my gosh, this is just this is my family," you know. Mm. And uh, yeah, I didn't make it clearly, but I didn't expect to. It was just nice to do that last run and just say I gave it my all. Can have me going sorry oh, God, I, I, I'm sorry I just can't believe I'm, I haven't been like this for a long time but anyway okay okay get myself Ooh. back on track okay, okay. <laughs> so it was in London but what did you, how did you spend London 2012 what did you, oh did, did you do during so, it um well if you don't know so throughout my career I worked um I was at EDF Energy yeah for 18 years god scary um so EDF Energy were one of the the partners for the game so I was able to see it from another perspective which was just mm. phenomenal um and during the games they had me as their gosh must be a joke it was a joke it was absolutely great fun <laughs> um but they had me as their roving reporter and they developed this series called Challenge Donna um so I worked at EDF Energy as their health and well-being manager um and they they asked staff to send in challenges for me during the games what I should do and one particular challenge was to get from our office in Victoria uh, to the Olympic Park by as many modes of transport as possible and it was being filmed and it was just hilarious oh <laughs> I had such a ball and I must dig out that video but it was just so much fun but just to see me in a different light and then also bringing the games to life for staff at EDF Energy just getting excited about it it, it just worked uh, and I just had such an amazing time but then of course being part of it from an EDF energy perspective I was able to go to the opening ceremony and I was just like a kid in a candy shop because as an athlete I've never been to an opening ceremony I was always not able to go because of the rest of your legs and because there's a lot of standing around and so I'd always seen it on TV and or in the the village when we're there as a as a team so to see it live I was like oh my gosh this is just fantastic I was just I was so I was nervous as well thinking what is wrong with me but you know it, it really excited me I, I was just so honoured to be able to go to an opening ceremony not as an athlete but just as a spectator and it was just brilliant it was I special, loved it it was a special sign wasn't it yeah, I think yeah. someone someone described it was the 10 year anniversary quite recently someone described it to me as, as peak UK Oh. Uh, I think that kind of sums it up. It was just, it was just a, you know, it was just a moment, a, a month or so of just goosebumps and just yeah. feeling good about life. Yeah. yeah. 
definitely i mean yeah. the entire nation was transformed was it in london yeah. people were friendly on the train they were excited <laughs> yeah. and smiling and you know everyone in there they they gave the games makers kit and it was just like oh this is just brilliant london just lifted it it was exactly what we needed at that time and it did its job yeah great stuff great great so um the next thing i have to talk about really is is uh, there was um Hansen did come back into life, didn't it, through through your long-term coach, uh, Ayo Falolo. Now, Ayo was a, obviously one of the most talented coaches in the country with yourself and Marilyn Coro, Montel, Danny Crates, um, Joe Mo- loads of, I mean, at one time, like a, what, a quarter of the British team might be filled up with Ayo's athletes. <laughs> yeah. He was obviously a very talented athlete, a very talented coach, but also he was one of those that um, everyone kind of liked him as well. He was, a, he, he was a good guy. Um, but he sadly passed away in 2000, 2015 of cancer as well, didn't he? First of all, talk us through, let's not talk about cancer anymore, let's just talk about the relationship you had with yeah. him, yeah? And what, what, what a wonderful human being he was. Oh, he was. He was everything that we, we say as coaches are. Your best friend, not only a coach, your doctor, your physio, your confidant, your psychologist. He <laughs> was everything rolled into one. The comedian... Um, he'd always have the right thing to say. Sometimes you think, what the hell does that mean, Ayo? But he knew each and every one of us individually. Not everyone would do the same training session. He'd adapt. He was just amazing. And when you're in it, you don't see it. It's only now, obviously, he's not around. But I look back and I think, oh, my gosh, he how he and I still look at this particular race um, that, that myself and uh, Marilyn were in indoors 2009 at the the trials and how he managed to give us both advice separately but manage that dynamics in the warm-up area I do not know to this day but that takes a lot for a coach to do knowing that either one of his athletes could have won that race but managing us was just it, it was great you know he knew what to say to me he knew what to say to Maz um, with me, he'd leave notes in my spike bag or my training diary. He would not usually, unless we're in training, but pre-race or at the race, he would never talk to me on that level. He'd leave notes for me because that's how I received information. So he was he was just an amazing individual. And also he, he realised he didn't have the answers to everything. So he'd go and do his own research, work with other coaches, the best in the world outside of the UK and and adapt again and and I would have you always used to say I was his guinea pig um who I was his first athlete to coach so it was trial and error those first few years working with AO and I actually asked him to coach me because some of the information he we were training we were training partners initially um and he'd give me information I'm thinking well how do you know that what and and he I'd try it and it would work and I'm thinking oh my gosh and I'm like, well why don't you coach me you have all this knowledge and he's like nah and I'm like well I'm telling you, you're going to coach me. So that relationship started with just me and him. And then he realised, obviously, I needed a training partner and he started to grow that. And that's how Danny came on board. And again, at the first group to have a non-disabled and a disabled athlete training Mm. together, you know, he set the scene for that um, because people thought that that's not possible. Absolutely it is. Um, 
and Danny and I worked phenomenally well together uh, and we pulled each other through training sessions we worked off of each other but Ayo as an individual he was unique everyone will remember him for his laugh um mm. you could hear his laugh a mile off mm. um got on well with everyone he he had a tough side to him um and a straight talking side to him that's for sure but that that's what a coach should be that you've got to have that trust and honesty and he certainly had that are there moments when you th- did, is there some of his words or advice that has stayed with you and, and even now it comes to it comes to your mind of you know what, what AO might have told you and stuff that you might pass on yourself that AO has told you oh there's loads his anecdotes would just he'd just come out with them um one I'll always remember is well it's actually not his but it, it's Adidas's you know impossible is nothing he'd always say that to it to all of us in fact and one he'd always say at the end of the notes that he'd write in my spike bag would be you got this you know believe in you he'd always say that um but yeah he he was I'm, I missed him because of his personality he was just he was just so out there some of the training sessions I'm thinking why on earth are we doing this he'd sometimes have us playing badminton and basketball <laughs> to warm up and just but then when you think about it it was just that agility you know strength especially for me when I broke my ankle that year the change of direction just to get that strengthening just to take me away from the environment that I knew I would struggle with or he knew I would struggle with so bringing that fun aspect into training you know sometimes he made me well not sometimes he did make me do a spinning class I was the instructor for the rest of my training group as a warm-up I mean, it, it it just out there stuff again, just changing it up a little bit. Every Christmas we'd do a hill session, but we'd be in fancy dress. All those kinds of things that. Uh, <laughs> seriously, honest, seriously. Yeah, what did you dress? What did you dress up as then? <laughs> I went as um, Mrs. Santa Claus one year. <laughs> Another training partner, she came as a fairy and she had wings. <laughs> I mean, he came in a. a a onesie to do hills he'd join in the training sessions a lot of times yeah, with okay. us yeah, yeah yeah um and I was telling this story the other day actually uh we had 300s to do this is at Crystal Palace no word of a lie and he had to go to work afterwards so he was dressed in full suit and we were not hitting the times at all and he said for goodness sake maybe in not so polite words but come on I could run the times I'm asking you to do in a suit and we were like right whatever go on do it and he did a 300 in a full suit in shoes and made the time (laughs) and we were like okay we can't argue with that so you know he was that kind of coach that regardless he'd always say you know we'll work hard but we'll play we'll we'll work we'll work hard but we'll also play hard so you know our warm weather training trips were like no other um we we'd always have fun on our down days we'd have fun we'd go and explore wherever we were day trips out it wasn't just stay at home and rest yes of course we got our rest in but we had a good time as well and I, I doubt anyone in that training group wouldn't say the same yeah it's uh I think he's you're, you're not yeah I mean you know this but anyone who's worked in athletics know that it's, it's a competitive sport like a lot of individual competitive sports that it can be a bit gossipy can be a bit bitchy at times quite frankly um but he's one of those characters that sort of transcended all that wasn't he he just uh he didn't he really, didn't he didn't yeah. have that yeah. he, he'd always yeah. say leave your baggage at the door when you come yeah. to training leave your baggage at the door because i yeah. want 
all of you focused on the training session what we've got to do when you leave training you can pick the baggage up pick the baggage up on your way out so none of this gossip stuff that our our group was very much again we were like a family if there was an issue it would be dealt with there and then none of these things festering because it just impacts the training group um so he wasn't he was definitely wasn't like that mm. okay so AO obviously always in your heart AO always Lola. always um but another part of your anatomy we have to talk about is um your legs, Donna. Yes. I, don't, I don't wish this to sound like a, a hashtag me too, but you're, uh, we'll keep this strictly physiological, but uh, you have ridiculously long legs, don't you? <laughs> I do, I do. Oh gosh, and it, it was a nightmare growing up, I tell you. I'm so glad now the all these uh, fashion houses now have realised there are people who are tall but with long legs and long arms. So now buying clothes is not so much an issue, but growing up it was a nightmare. But yeah, I do have long legs. I'm looking at them now thinking I really should have got them insured. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, I mean is that was it was it always the way were you born like with the long dangly legs when you were a little, yeah, little baby yeah. yeah well I didn't shoot up until the age of 11 going mm. into secondary school that's when I was the same size as everyone else at primary school and then all of a sudden I just grew um, my legs grew longer and my body got shorter so that's why I was very always in ankle swingers it seemed to me and got teased about that and you know all of the the silly things that youngsters say to each other oh is it is it cold up there and <laughs> oh your boyfriend's gonna need a ladder to kiss you and oh all of those things and it was just like seriously but I must admit um my sister she was the one because again you tend to hang over to speak to your friends and like no stand tall always stand tall and look up and and just be confident and be proud of your height and and it was those little things that instilled that confidence in that and it helped probably in my athletics because you know you're walking out into a stadium a thousand thousand people walk tall and that's what I'd always think no matter what's going on inside just still walk tall um but yeah my legs are they've served me well I can't knock them they've served me well but for when it comes to clothing it can be a bit of a pain <laughs> I'll bet yeah good so so moving on to your career after athletics now and, and inclusivity and diversity has been a big a big passion for you hasn't it working with well different bodies UK athletics star stuff there I think um tell me about that what, what, why was it you chose chose to go in that direction yeah I didn't even choose to be honest um I probably stumbled across it it was I was when I was at EDF Energy, someone asked me, oh, have you got employee networks at EDF? And I was like, well, I don't think we have. And I'm thinking I should really know this because I've been in the organisation for such a long time. So I did a bit of digging and it turned out we did have a number of employee networks. One was the BAME Network, the Black Asian Minority Ethnic Network. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. What's this all about? So I got involved with them um, and then was appointed on top of my day job. Um, the employee engagement lead for that network so excuse me I was catapulted into the world of equality diverse inclusion I'm thinking what is all of this about but it soon transpired that it was almost like another athletics team you know everyone was trying to striving to be the best that they can be that sense of belonging performance progression all of these buzzwords were just coming thrown at me and I'm thinking 
this is this is me this is this is where I belong and helping others to progress so um I got involved in the in the BAME network and it was just brilliant and I say it was brilliant in the sense that there was work to be done uh, we had a lot of things that we needed to work together on and, and deliver projects but at the same time I thought I can help here I can help make a difference with my sporting mind in and interweave that and this is why I always say how we are as athletes those transferable skills into business is just it's it's there you know and some athletes don't realize that so um I, I was literally handed the bat and excuse the pun to become <laughs> chair of that network uh, and it was just like oh this is brilliant again still doing my day job but in fact, I was doing two jobs and it was bizarre because I was thinking I'm actually used to doing two jobs. I was working at EDF and I was doing my athletics and now I've retired. This is something that I can really pick up and, and do another job. Uh, and in that time, we we get that whole inclusivity piece, because, of course, although there's different employee networks, what I found was there were a lot of the same issues that we were crossing all the employee networks. And I was thinking, well, why are we working in silo here? We should be working together on some of the same issues. Not everything, because they are mm. different, but there are some key things there, like progression. Everyone mm. wants to progress. How can we work together on these, these areas? So we were actually the first network to collaborate with the LGBTQ plus network at EDF Energy. And it was like, mind blown for everyone it's like how can this be I'm thinking well it's a no-brainer no-brainer for me um and then we really started to work more collaboratively on things the women's network crossing over with LGBTQ plus and, and vice versa and, and the agenda just started to ramp up so much so that I was thinking wow you know this is this is great stuff and we got a few awards and then I realized, OK, that's great because this is not my day job. I need to focus on my day job. But then I hit that glass ceiling and, and I couldn't see a pathway for me at EDF Energy. And although they were brilliant with me, they helped support me when I was an athlete. But I couldn't see where my progression was going to go. And of course, I had a lot of time now to, to mm. put into my career. Um, and then this job came up at UK Athletics as their EDI lead. And I was like, this is just a dream come true. This is my dream job. My athletics, I'm st I still love my sport. I'm sure I can help make a difference there. And then with the expertise I have with EDI and yeah, I ended up uh, working at UK Athletics. So it's just like, Great. awesome. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a big chunky subject and it's uh, and it's a, uh... But has there been times when you've experienced prejudice or you've, or you've been witness to it or it's happened and you've been a bit rocked back? Has that happened? Yeah, I think my first experience, I've heard stories from my parents because they came over here in the 60s, but not as a young age. So they did. I didn't have that bias uh, at all growing up. It was, it was just as, to, as I got older, I heard stories and. And I was like, wow, gosh, that's crazy. But for me personally, the only time I experienced it when I traveled to South Africa competing. Um, and I, I must admit, you know, you hear how it was in South Africa and I was not looking forward to going. I, I didn't want to go. Um, but I thought, you know what, Donnie, you have to have your own judgment and go and experience it and then see how it goes. You, ca you can't have assumptions um, so I went and I was at a competition 
and the blocks were there for everyone to use like at some most competitions but it was more it wasn't a high class it was a local meet again AO and is great finding all meets all over the place for us to compete in and the blocks were there I took a pair of blocks put them down measured them up was practicing and this girl came home and said they're my blocks and I was like but these blocks are for everyone and I was like this is really odd but that the tone and the attitude she came mm. to me with I'm thinking they're not your blocks they're for everyone and and then what really really hit home for me I won the race it was 100 meters I did and the in the stands there were these young black kids in the in the stadium in the stands some of them didn't have any trainers or anything they were going absolutely ballistic and I thought it makes sense because they probably rarely see a black girl win mm, mm. you know uh, and and it just made me think that the the, the girl who with the, the blocks incident that's why you did that you, you you did that on purpose it had nothing to do with they're your blocks they're not your blocks it was mm. because of who I the color of my skin and who I am so it was just that was the only time there were other incidences uh, uh, in South Africa not that trip and another trip that didn't happen to me but some others uh, and you just think it's still there. It absolutely is still out there. Where, where would you regard athletics generally in terms of inclusivity? Is it is it in a better place than other sports? Has it still got a long way to go? I, I always say athletics is the most diverse, inclusive sport out there. Um, there's so many strands to it. We've got the para athletes. We've got male and female competing together. Yes, absolutely. There's still a long way to go. Um, you know, we've got the whole officials, cohort of people. We're getting young people coming through now. We have to think about that. The whole I, I there's so many things that I can pinpoint. And those are just a, a few I've mentioned. But yes, there's a lot of work to do. Of course, now we've got the, the, the trans inclusion conversation going mm. on at the moment. So that's another thing um, in terms of access. That is the big thing for me because our sport is very accessible there. You can most people can run, jump or throw, whether you're, you're non-disabled or disabled, you can participate in athletics. But it's getting to the facilities that is the issue. Um, so that accessibility piece is, is one of my bugbears. You know, Crystal Palace is up the road from me and it's falling apart. There are some my club even the track is falling apart. So there, there people can access it, but it's getting to use the facilities. So facilities is an issue. Okay, okay. Uh, what about the rest of the sporting landscape? What, what, what's, what's your take on where the rest of, of sport is in terms of inclusivity? I mean, what was your take on the, I think particularly the men's Euros, the 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 taking of the knee and the and the re, and the reaction to that negative and positive? What was your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I. I I struggled a lot um, because, of course, the, you know, with Black Lives Matter, that whole campaign, it really brought the DNI conversation to the forefront. People started to think and stand up and listen rather than it just being a tick box exercise. That does happen not only in sport, but in organisations as well. So the conversation started. But you will hear time and time again, people are done talking. They want to see action now. Yeah. And when you talk about action, it's about policies and the doing not just talking about it it's doing and making those fundamental changes and changes can happen if if those who are those decision makers 
want to do it. it it's easily done. Um, but there's always that red tape for some reason. Some people don't want to take that best, take their best, put their best foot forward and make those tough decisions. And that's what the only thing that's going to make a difference in the long term when we're talking about inclusivity, that sense of belonging and sit, sitting outside the box and doing something different, not doing the the easy things. And, and you know, I, I've been told ED&I is all the fluffy stuff. I, I hear it all the time. Well, Yes, there are nice things about it, bringing people together and hugs and all of that. That's great. But it's how does that individual feel and and taking that into account, asking those difficult conversations? How does that person really feel about being part of that team? You know, giving them that space and creating that environment that they can be honest about how they feel and then putting those interventions into place, because without having those honest conversations Things will just bubble along. People come to work or come to a sport, do their thing and go off again. But deep down, they're not comfortable. They're not happy. Just just speaking of personally, have you ever had one of the I've had one of these experiences or, or more, more than one of these experiences where, where I've been in a, in a work situation where um, I've looked around at the people I'm working with and there's been incredible diversity there. I mean, I'm talking like, you know, a guy in his 80s, you know, um, you know, a girl of, of Indian heritage, real, real ma- massive mix of people, like different religions and the rest. And it works. And it's just it's just like one of those things. Wow. Look at us. We, we You know, if people saw us in the pub together hanging out, they'd, they'd take a bit of a, you know, a second look at us. But here we are working together. I'm talking about a bunch of volunteers working with me at a sporting event and it just works. And everyone brings something different to the table. And, and that to me is what it's all about, really. Absolutely. And it's not just about that visual diversity, it's diversity of thought, different backgrounds, different experiences, as you say, bringing that together. It's just phenomenal. I mean, the team that I I had because everyone's flown the nest now, completely different backgrounds, experiences, LGBTQ plus, uh, a social worker, a young girl from Bristol who's just starting into the world of DNI. And, and me and and just I mean we just had an amazing time because different ideas asking opinions but then it took me to create that environment for them to thrive as well so it takes a leader to see that that everyone has something to bring to the table and recognizing that and so that they can flourish in that and build and that's the only way it will work if you just dampen that down and just have that well I'm the leader be directive and this is how it's going to be it just won't work mm-hmm. okay okay it's obviously how passionate you are passionate you are oh, about this just as you're as an athlete yeah, I, really am, come I, am. I could talk all day long <laughs> so i won't keep much longer now but so what what other ambitions do you have now i mean it's, it's obviously you know it's not it's not come to the end of, end of the line your career as you've still got the fire in your belly it seems what other ambitions do you have you were awarded the oba last year of course so there's already good recognition for what you're doing yeah, that that blew me away as well. It just felt like a, the letter I received in '96 for the Olympic Games, um, but except this was by email, and I thought it was a hoax. I thought it was a, <laughs> I thought it was a spam email. I thought that can't be right. Um, yeah, the OBE again, like we don't do what we do for that recognition. You do to make a mm. difference, and um, yeah, I'll just keep doing what I can do, and and the whole again we, when we talk about experiences. The whole breast cancer experience, what AO went through, I get up in the morning thinking, you know, I'm grateful for life. 
you know, because tomorrow is not guaranteed. What difference and what positive impact can I have today on someone or or anything? If I can do that, then I'm fulfilling what I set out to do. So what the, does the future hold for Donna Fraser? Um, I know I I'd said when I was 30 that I'd be married with kids and sitting on my veranda in the Caribbean with a cocktail. That's what I said. I haven't achieved that. And it's my big 50 this year. So I'm oh, 20. Right. Yeah, exactly. Wow. I know. A bit old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 20 years overdue. So um, definitely the, the sitting on the veranda piece with a cocktail is still possible. The marriage and kids, definitely not. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just living each day, Chris, to be honest. Um, yeah, I think there's still a lot of work absolutely to be done in the DNI space. And I think I could help in that space. Um, and yeah, I just want to enjoy if I can. And again, you know, I, I even last week I went back down to Croydon Harriers, you know, just to inspire and, and try and give some of my experiences back to the next generation. I'm more than happy to do that. Went to Lily B League a couple of weeks back and I was just like, oh, my gosh, that was me many years ago. So you know, now and again, I will go and try and inspire that next generation. I'll keep on doing that. Fabulous. Well, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, Donny. You've you've been you were an incredible role model as an athlete, and you're, and you're an incredible role model as a as a human being as well. So, Thank thanks you. so much for being so honest and open and sharing your incredible story with us today. Thank, Thank you. you Sorry, I cried. Oh gosh. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. You, you were you were you're so honest and authentic. So, thank you very much. Thank really appreciate you. it. Thanks for listening to Athletic Life Stories with Chris Broadbent. Please tell your friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.